This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We are bringing you the very best of book talk. And we're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to at Pub Weekly Radio, that's Pub W-K-L-Y Radio. Now today, author and editor Paul Eli is going to join us in the studio to talk about his book, Reinventing Bach, and then we'll talk with PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers about the recently announced Newbery and Caldecott Award winners. But first, we've got a sneak peek at next week's Publisher's Weekly Bestseller List, uh, powered by Nielsen BookScan. Rose, so what do we have for us? We're going to talk fiction first? Let's talk fiction first. Uh, James Patterson has gone straight to the top of the bestseller list his first week with his newest book in stores. This is co-written with Mark Sullivan, and it's called Private Berlin. Uh, so it rockets up there. It sold more than 35,000 copies. Uh, pretty impressive first week out. Uh, and this is the fifth private thriller about pri- after uh, Private London. Now, James Patterson uh, seems to publish a... Quite a few books, uh, maybe annually? Yeah, he publishes quite a lot. Uh, He's got a number of co-authors, and I I think they take a lot of the the burden off of him. Wouldn't it be nice to split your job with somebody else? You could get twice as much done. I know. Well, we are (laughs) co-hosting. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Uh, So also new on the fiction list uh, is another thriller. That's Robert Crace's Suspect, which debuts at number three. PW's review said, expect the expected. And we also called Private Berlin formulaic, but these formulas do seem to be making readers happy. So I guess there's a lot to be said for picking up a book and uh, just knowing what you're going to get. Now, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about maybe genre fiction and, and uh, sure. formulaic. I mean, it's it's my impression that uh, with, with thrillers or, or um, you know many other genre books that there is a formula. How is one more formulaic than another, would you think? Well... I think that with any type of of genre, as soon as you say the word genre, Mm -hmm. what you mean is that you have a certain set of expectations Mm -hmm. going in. So, for example, if you're in the mystery genre, Mm -hmm. then you expect that there will be a mystery. You'll expect that at the beginning there will be something that is confusing or mysterious or unknown that you have to figure out and that someone in the book has to figure out. And part of what you get when you're opening up a mystery book is the excitement of trying to figure it out before the investigators in the book do. And usually there's a counterpoint story which has to do with the personal life of the investigator. And a lot of this stems from the noir novels, the, the, the hard-bitten crime right. novels of uh, in the, earlier in the 20th century. And when you pick up a thriller, which is a, a more recent term in some ways, that's more about how it makes you feel. So the same way that, for example, a horror novel makes you feel scared or a comedy novel makes you laugh, mm-hmm. uh, a suspense novel, a thriller novel makes you feel excited. It makes you feel anticipation. You're on the edge of your seat. Your heart is pounding. You're in it for the adrenaline rush. Right. And so, so when so when a reviewer might say formulaic, that means it's maybe even just too apparent. Well, 
It depends. And when we say formulaic, usually it means it hits everything that you expect. You know where the story is going to go. But because thrillers in particular are not about a plot necessarily, but they're about the reader's experience, the reader's emotional Mm -hmm. experience, uh, the same as with a romance novel, for example, uh, the the reader's emotional experience is that you're going to follow along with these people and kind of feel what they feel. So for a thriller, you're feeling their excitement, you're feeling their their fear, their risk. Uh, when they're in dangerous situations, you get that thrill like you're in danger, except you can do it safely from the comfort of your own home. And same with romance, you get to feel falling in love, you get to feel the drama, but you get to do it without actually risking your heart. Oh, wonderful. So that's you know, if we say something is formulaic, then that means uh, it, it has all the expected elements. But for a lot of readers, that doesn't really matter. Like I can say, a romance, this romance novel is very formulaic. It has all the expected elements. You know, They meet cute, and then they you know, discover their similarities, but then they discover their differences, but then they have a fight, but then they make up, and then they overcome a challenge, and they live happily ever after. That's, that's a formula. Right. But if it's written well, if the writing is engaging... And if you find yourself really cheering them on, it doesn't matter whether you've read that story in some form a thousand times before. What matters is that you have that emotional investment. You're really into it and you really want them to succeed. And it's the same with, with these formulaic thrillers. You know, Patterson really knows what he's doing. Right. And uh, it can be formulaic the way, um, I don't know, drinking your favorite beer is, is exactly the same beer that you've drunk a thousand times before, but you still get the buzz. Well said, Rose. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella, Publishers <laughs> Weekly Radio. We're talking about the uh, our little sneak peeks here on uh, bestsellers for next week, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And we've got one more, uh, is it a debut that we have, another novel? Yes, this is a, a debut. Uh, number five on our overall bestseller list is Kim Harrison's Ever After. And this is a paranormal suspense novel. It's urban fantasy. And uh, this is the 11th installment in her Hollows urban fantasy series. So there are only two books left to go. The series is planned to last 13 books, and she's clearly putting the pieces in place for the end game. Mm. Uh, so that means that this one is really mostly for the fans, as we say. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a good book. It just means that you should probably have read those previous 10 books if you want to have any idea of what's going on in this one. But again, those fans have put it at number five on our bestseller list. So clearly for people who've been following along with the story, they're very excited to find out what happens next. And I'm sure they've been reading her all along as well. Oh, yes, undoubtedly. <laughs> so what, what have we got going on in nonfiction? Well, Mark? we've just got one uh, nonfiction, that, listen, one debut, and this is Francona, The Red Sox Years. And this is a book by uh, uh, Terry Francona, who was the uh, manager of the Boston Red Sox baseball team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's written with uh, Dan Shaughnessy. And here he talks about uh, what it was like managing this great story team. Uh, and I think he's uh, pretty open about what what is uh, what happened, uh, what led to their rise, and then later downfall. Uh, the last season wasn't so great. Uh, many fans, many fans would, uh, would would uh, would would agree heartily with me. Uh-huh. And so, and, and it's kind of interesting that a baseball book is is uh, being published in in February out of baseball season. But yeah, that's it, true. Yeah, but it tops our chart at. I'm sorry, it's uh, on our chart at uh, number four. Mm-hmm. And that's really our, the the only big uh, surprise for for nonfiction. But um, you and I, along with the staff of Publishers Weekly, have worked 
pretty hard on our announcements issue each That's year. That's right. We come up with uh, uh, spring and fall announcements where we offer readers and now listeners, you, uh, a sneak peek at what is going to be coming up. And since we have Paul Eli on our show next, uh, he wrote a book the, uh, that you mentioned, Reinventing Bach and Music Book. I think I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the music books that I see. So I would, I would love to know a little bit more about that. And when we say spring, it's really spring and summer. It's February through July. And it's, it's really looking forward to the first half of the year and what's going to be very exciting for us this year. So, so tell me what you have in the music world. Well, uh, let me start off with a quote. Never be ashamed to write a melody that people remember. And that was by Burt Bacharach. Uh, he's the composer and music producer. And he's coming out with a book called My Life in Music, uh, Anyone Who Had a Heart. And he talks about composing music, writing music of a certain era of the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote so many songs for uh, Dusty Springfield, Elvis Costello, Neil Diamond, uh, Dionne Warwick. Um, and you might remember some of his songs like uh, Raindrops Keep Falling in My Head sure. and uh, the theme from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And every every year we, we have uh, biographies of that era, the 50s and 60s, we also have uh, My Way, an autobiography by uh, the singer Paul Anka. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that title refers to the song My Way, which, of course. He, yeah, which we all know. Which as, we all know. As Frank Sinatra's song, mm-hmm. which he, it's, uh, it was a song based on uh, a French, French song, and he changed the lyrics, rewrote them, and uh, as a gift gave them to Frank Sinatra. And so, but he himself is. Uh, uh, a singer, well-respected in his own right. And so we have a, a, a lot of these biographies, or I'm sorry, autobiographies coming out, uh, a handful each season, it seems, especially as these uh, singers are, are, are aging uh, mm-hmm. in their 70s and 80s and uh, have a story they, they want to tell. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio, and my co-host Mark Rotella is telling us about some exciting music books that are coming out in the spring and summer. What else is on tap? Well, turning to uh, country music, uh, I think one of the uh, the books with one of the biggest prints uh, this season is Billy Ray Cyrus's um, Hillbilly Heart. Uh, we all know him for uh, the song Achy Breaky Heart, but mm-hmm. also more recently for his uh, TV and movie star uh, daughter, Miley Cyrus. Well, you know, somehow I missed the... They were related. This is how ignorant I am of all things celebrity. Uh, but, you know, this, this is why I love hosting the show with you, Mark, is that I learn a little something every week. So. I love it. This is so charming. I think this is why it's so much fun to talk about this, because there's, there's, something, uh, there's always something one of us doesn't know about mm-hmm. uh, what, what, <laughs> what the other might, might, might uh, see as just, just, uh, just assume well, knowledge. Of course, everyone knows right, that. Right. Well, everyone except me. <laughs> but I love it. That's great. So he's got a book coming out. Uh, and he's talking about his family, church, faith, and uh, I, I think Nashville music. Um, we also have, talking about country music, but from the 60s and 70s, is a book uh, called Outlaw, Waylon, Willie, Chris, and the Renegades of Nashville. Uh, here, music writer Michael Streithgard compares the narratives of the lives of Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, and Chris Christopherson. And he sees this as... Uh, these three as instrumental in what 
he calls the renegade culture of Nashville music. And this is what kind of made it go from a uh, uh, pretty grand old Opry to kind of a rough, rough and tough sound in country music that we heard in the 1960s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And of course now the music seems to have returned to a more pure, um, more produced sound than yeah. it was, was at that time. I was going to say, I don't think of it as being all that rough and tough anymore. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. I think that's gone all to metal. Uh, and, and so this looks like a, a pretty solid history uh, on that, on that era. And I, and I often like books that are, uh, that kind of tell a, a slice of history, you know, a slice of history through various characters. And this one being these three singers. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one. So, so we're talking the South. We're going to keep in the South just for a little bit, but it's for from a uh, man named Richard Myers, who is a 17-year-old runaway from Kentucky. He uh, fled Kentucky, moved to New York City, and became one of the biggest names in uh, punk band and uh, punk rock. He found a band called the Voidoids. His name is Richard Hell, and the story is: I dreamed. I was a very clean tramp. Um, huh. which, which, what a uh, great title. I, yeah, I really liked it. And uh, I remember um, in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, uh, a bar called Mona's in the Lower East Side, mm-hmm. uh, where Richard Hell would, would spend time with uh, members of the Voidoids or not, just himself playing pool. And he was quite a celebrity down there. But, but I think with uh, rock and and punk musicians. I mean, he's definitely not a big name uh, by any means. Uh, but but for musicians, he's kind of a musician's musician or right. singer singer. And going down uh, the list a little bit, and so we're moving from uh, country music to bad boy renegades to uh, runaways. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we have Queens of Noise, the real story of the runaways. And this is the story uh, told by uh, um, uh, a writer about uh, the uh, about the band The Runaways, which is Lita Ford, Sandy West, Jackie Fox, Joan Jett, and Cherry Curry. And these were, in ways, your original women rockers. And, right. And that, that's a real super group. That's a super group. Exactly. And this is a story that hasn't been told. And a lot of these uh, singers were available and and talk to the uh, author of the book. Oh, so I think, I, I think it's going to be a really good story uh, about, again, the same era, the 60s, 70s, and rock and roll. And this is almost a, uh, this is like a really rough edge band. And of course, we know uh, Joan Jett and Lita Ford had, had sure. their careers afterwards. Um, and uh, moving on, uh, just like dipping back a little bit further, there are two books uh, that talk about early 20th century music, Lena and Serge, The Love and Wars of Lena Prokofiev uh, by Simon Morrison. And uh, he explores the life of the wife of the composer, uh, Lena, and uh, who spoke out against the uh, USSR's political regime and was imprisoned from 1948 to 1956. Uh, meanwhile, right around this time in the ghettos of Warsaw, Vera Grand, the accused by Agata uh, Tuskina, was the uh, he, she's the biographer of Isaac Bashevis Singer, and she tells about this woman's life who is a cabaret singer and really influential in Warsaw, Poland. Uh, but who was uh, later, after after the war, deemed a Nazi sympathizer, and um, she, I think, explores whether that was the case or not. And finally, one last book: we have uh, the cultural critic Torre's book, uh, 
on Prince, which I think is going to be a, a pretty exciting book. I Would Die For You, Why Prince Became an Icon. And I think that's going to be uh, uh, getting a lot of reviews and yeah, I'm uh, sure. a lot of play. I think Prince is such an unusual uh, character. He, he completely stepped away from the the stereotype of the 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 manly man you know, who who gets all the girls, and instead he was up there wearing completely flamboyant clothes and mm-hmm. still getting all the girls and and dancing like a girl in and ways. Absolutely, yeah. you know, he he just uh, he he bucked gender, yeah, uh, all 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 sorts of gender yeah. conformity long before. Anybody else was really thinking along those lines, and he was tremendously successful doing it. Amazing, and the songs he wrote for others. I mean, the other musicians and singers who had success on songs is, uh, I, I mean, he really is an icon. Mm-hmm. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, we're going to be talking with Paul Eli about his new book, Reinventing Bach, and so we'll be right back. Oh, you know I couldn't resist. <laughs> you know I couldn't. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Today we've got Paul Eli in the studio with us here in our offices. He's an author and editor, and most recently the author of Reinventing Bach. It is the story of a revolution in music and technology told through a century of recordings of the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. And the book has been nominated for a National Book Critics Circle Award. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So... I'm just going to put it very simply. What is the significance of Bach in our world today? Somebody once said about Bach's music that it's the most, it's the simplest and the most complex. And that's certainly my experience. You hear Bach in a little crib toy, you know, shortly after a child is born. And then you go and hear the St. Matthew Passion at Carnegie Hall. And then you, uh, hear Bach in the background of an American Express commercial uh, during the Super Bowl. Uh, his music is totally distinctive and yet totally adaptable to different circumstances, instruments, contexts, periods. And my book is a story of how it's remained itself through such adaptation, through reinvention. That's why it's called Reinventing Bach. And what, what I mean, you've already mentioned a couple, but... What might listeners not be aware of when they're listening to Bach? I mean, listeners, uh, I mean, we, it seems like we hear Bach in our everyday lives. Well, to take an obvious example, the 10th anniversary of the World Trade Center disaster, Yo-Yo Ma was at ground zero. He played, among other things, uh, part of a Bach cello suite while the names were being read out, the names of those killed in the attacks. And that music, to me, it's really strange. This is music written in the 1712 or thereabouts by a composer in provincial Germany who mainly worked for princes and churches. And it made its way to America so that now a Paris-born American-based cellist of Chinese parentage uh, commemorates the deaths of 300, uh, or 3,000 Americans uh, by playing this German music. To me, that's a, a, what a strange story of the, the twisting path that a piece of music can take. Uh, you know, Bach certainly couldn't have had something like that in mind for his music. Oh, sure. And recording. I mean, so you've, you've just mentioned the, the cellist, Ma, but you also talk about other recording artists and other 
well, maybe not even recording artists, but performing artists, uh, such as Glenn Gould. How was his interpretation of Bach of his time, or, or how is it that we listen to him, perhaps, to his rendition of Bach than we would others? So Glenn Gould was a young prodigy. As I understand it, he was the first great musician to grow up influenced as much by recordings as by live music. It's hard for us now, you know, on the radio here to think that there was a time before radio, before recordings, when if you wanted to hear the music of Bach, you had to go down to the gazebo in town and the odd German guy in your town who taught music (laughs) would assemble an amateur ensemble and they'd play some music on, say, a summer night. Mm -hmm. Uh, Recordings were invented in the late 19th century. By the 30s, they were ubiquitous because of radio and the relatively inexpensive phonograph. And then uh, Glenn Gould, born in 1932, grew up with all this. So he was really influenced by recordings as much as by live music. So when he set out to make a Bach recording, he didn't think, well, how can I make it as good as what I played in the recital hall? He wanted, He saw the recording as a thing in itself. And various things that he did to emphasize the recordedness of of the piece. But in any case, it's, uh, I think because of his conviction that the recording is an art form in itself, that his recording is strong enough to withstand the test of time. And uh, a recording made in 1955 is still, say, the benchmark recording of the Goldberg Variations uh, more than half a century later. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, where we're talking with author Paul Eli about the music of Johann Sebastian Bach and how it's been interpreted. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you was this whole notion of interpretation. I certainly grew up with the sense that jazz is improvised, but classical music is played more or less the way that it's always been played, except over time I figured out that that wasn't actually true, that really every current musician does put their own spin on it. How is our sense of how classical music is interpreted, how Bach's work or art interpreted, how has that changed from the time that it was written until now? There Different people have different views on this, but I think it's safe to say that there's all sorts of factors uh, that shape an interpretation of the music that, short of jazz improvisation, not a musician making up notes that will never be played again in that particular order, but all sorts of choices that govern the way the music uh, sounds when it comes out. What kind of instrument is the musician playing? Is the musician playing uh, with vibrato or without vibrato? Is the ensemble small or large? There's been a 30-year debate among Bach interpreters about the size of his choirs. Uh, Some people say that the choir should be nine pieces, and some say 90. And Mm -hmm. a nine-piece choir is going to sound much different from a 90-piece choir, And those sorts of choices are analogous to uh, improvisation in the world of Bach. Mm -hmm. You know, each performer or recording artist goes in with a certain uh, set of assumptions or working method and, and, and goes forth. The same as say a rock band will decide to, you know, to do an unplugged album, let's say, or to do something with a symphony orchestra instead of uh, uh, a simple combo arrangement. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm Mark Rotella. This is Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Paul Eli about music of J.S. Bach and his book, Reinventing Bach. Paul, why Bach? Why now? And I guess for all our listeners out there who have a book in mind, have wanted to write a book, how, how did you come to want to write this book? And 
how did it come into being? So I, I've been on the book one way or another since 1998. I wrote another book in the meantime and did plenty of other things. But I, every year, have listened to the Bach Festival on the Columbia University radio station here in New York, WKCR. Ten days of wall-to-wall Bach over Christmas. To hear so much Bach all at once for free without having to make all sorts of decisions about what to buy and needing to learn things before you purchase. It was an incredible experience of, you know, gift given to me. I needed to figure that out. I started looking at the books that were out there. Some of them are remarkable, but none of them are pitched the way I hope that my book is pitched, which is it's a book for the intelligent listener because that's essentially what I am. I play electric guitar, but I don't play the music of Bach. I know how to read music, but I'm not going to read at the level of a Baroque music specialist. And yet, I have plenty of records, and it's it's the main thing I do for pleasure is listen to music. And there are thousands thousands of us who have some facility with music, and we just love listening to music, and we know a whole lot about it. But the the books that you encounter out there uh, are written for professional musicians, for musicologists, for people who... uh, seem to know everything already. Mm-hmm. So I almost, I could see this book on the shelf that was waiting to be written and I had a feeling that I had to go and write it. And that, when I was working as an editor with Farrah Strauss and Drew, that was something I would tell to authors. You know, when you, when you can feel that book that's, that ought to be there and isn't, um, maybe you're the person to write it. Yes, I, and and what you what what I really enjoyed uh, about this book is that you chose to write about the music from, uh, I think, an appreciation standpoint. I don't mean that at the basis level, but on the most sincere and genuine level, rather than uh, so many we have a history or a biography of the composer, uh, like a chronological history, and this was something that was conscious for you. I mean, this is something that I I think you convey in the book. And is this what you set out to do? Yeah. And I don't, uh, I didn't set out to do it didactically, but it's hard to believe, but in the classical music world, there's still a strong um, segment of the population that sees recordings as a diminished thing that, you know, that the demise of classical music began with the ubiquity of recordings. Uh, for me, the chance to encounter uh, you know, top-level performances relatively cheaply and really get to know them by listening to them over and over again, that's an experience that's totally powerful and pretty distinctive to our time. Mm-hmm. You know, the past 50 years, that's an experience that no group of music lovers in the history of the species has had until right. you know, the 40s or so. And right. it's Something like a miracle, really. And so I try to convey that the sense of the miraculous that I feel about recordings is through the book. And you had mentioned your first book. I mean, this is uh, uh, when you talked about the uh, the origination of this book. And that was The Life You Save May Be Your Own, uh, Pilgrimage. And this is about the confluence of the lives of four Catholic writers, as Thomas Merton, Flannery O'Connor, Dorothy Day, and Walker Percy. Do you see a thread connecting the two books? Definitely. And it's the thread of people knowing each other uh, and having a sense of uh, common enterprise, let's say, that goes way beyond how much time they actually spend together. Again, from working in publishing, I have a sense of how 
writers are connected through their publisher, through agents, through occasional events and correspondence and the reading of one another's books in a way that can far surpass the literal time spent together. Yes, there's some writers like you know, Kerouac and Ginsburg and friends who spend every night out together, but there are lots of others who just uh, have kept in touch at, at some distance. When you turn to music, uh, this is all the more true because the musicians are encountering each other's work through recordings. So someone like Albert Schweitzer is impelled to make a recording of Bach uh, when he learns that uh, Pablo Casals uh, is going to make a recording of Bach or the other way around. Then they hear each other's recordings and they have a sense of the music uh, that uh, binds them together. Mm-hmm. Then Glenn Gould hears those records and he moves it further. And then Yo-Yo Ma grows up listening to Pablo Casals' mm-hmm. recording of the sure. cello suites and round and round it goes. Right, right. Yeah, I've. Uh, uh, I, I think in my studies with Mario Lanza, I, I, it was Luciano Pavarotti, and uh, heard him and was inspired to do you know, to sing opera through a movie singer. I mean, through through you know, ex- someone who made his career on stage, and so that just and students for, of Pavarotti learned it through Lanza and then Caruso and before. Mm-hmm. And um, let's talk book tours a little bit. You've just come back from a book tour, so this is. Uh, kind of the the reverse of what you're saying. This is your chance to get out there and and be a performer in some ways and go out and interact with people in person. Uh, so what what was that like for you? It was thrilling. First of all, to have written a book and then be out in the world uh, talking about it that doesn't that doesn't get old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's nothing worse than these writers who complain about their book tours because <laughs> uh, it, it's a fantastic experience. Mm-hmm. On top of that, I was doing events with musicians in some cases, uh, virtuosos, a virtuoso cellist, virtuoso violinist, another virtuoso violinist, and I would s- tell the story of how the Bach solo violin Chacon was written. It had to do with the surprising death of Bach's first wife and his attempt to make a kind of musical tombstone for her. Amazing story. So I'd tell this story from the stage, and then a brilliant violinist would get up from the chair and, and play it. Mm. Fantastic. And oh, that's wonderful. probably the way that author events are uh, going to go more and more in the coming years, that there's a um, there's an aspect to it that you can't, um, that's unrepeatable, that can't be found just in the book that you can do right. on stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I remember correctly, you, you came across a bumper sticker that, that addresses this notion of, of uh, author and uh, touring rock star. And, and what is that bumper sticker? And, and tell us how that kind of shaped your thoughts on a book tour. So it was at uh, Quail Ridge Books in Raleigh. And a battered file cabinet had on the side of it the bumper sticker, Authors of My Rock Stars. <laughs> and that's, that's the feeling you get uh, going around booksellers. They cherish authors, so you, they make you feel like a rock star. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in certain communities... The author really is a rock star. I was in Seattle the night that um, Sherman Alexie was launching his new book at midnight. Mm. So I did my reading to a full house of you know, 150 people or whatever, nice, nice. then went over to his. The bookstore had 600 people in it at midnight in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, wine was flowing, and he was telling jokes. It was Sherman Alexie, the rock star of <laughs> the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle. Phenomenal. Sure. And then last fall... So many musicians were on on tour representing their books. Pete Townsend, 
Greg Allman. Um, I don't know if Carol King was out there, but she had a book out. Uh, Rod Stewart had a book out. Uh, it was really um, an embarrassment of riches as far as music memoirs was. I'm Mark Protella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Paul Eli about his book, Reinventing Bach. And we're talking about life on the road, uh, on the book tour and the rock tour. So you were just talking about various uh, authors who have books coming out and uh, I mean, various uh, musicians with books coming out. Did you get a chance to talk with them or, or was it, what do you think it is with them, uh, with these big names who are now releasing a book of their own? I mean, here they've been on the stage with records uh, selling out to, you know, playing their music. What makes it, what, what makes them want to write a book? Well, Neil Young in his book said that it gave him a chance to not tour for a year and get paid anyway. But <laughs> on the other hand, you have Pete Townsend who spent parts of 15 years writing this book and describes in it how he bought a specific house just to devote to the writing of the book. And Pete Townsend's a figure that ever since he was 30 years old, people expected he would write a book. The intellectual rock star, the one who always thought in narrative terms, something in his career wouldn't have been complete uh, without that story. What I think we've seen in the past few years, first with the Eric Clapton book and then with the Keith Richards book, is that uh, people are really eager to hear the stars tell their own story. And these people are not lacking in intelligence. You know, Eric Clapton and Keith Richards know how to tell a story. And they, you know, they got some help, but substantially theirs. So the... The emphasis has shifted from tell-all books about a celebrity to the, uh, the famous artist uh, telling his own or her own story with a kind of authority. On top of it all, uh, I think the people who still buy hardback books are uh, really committed to that generation of musician. They're, let's say, 45 and older, and uh, it's a real sweet meeting of, of books and music. Mm-hmm. I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Paul Eli about his book, uh, about his book Reinventing Bach. And um, I, I want to turn to a, a, a previous aspect of your life, and that is uh, you were recently a book editor for Strauss and Giroux. Uh, you were actually the editor of my book, two of my books. And what was your experience on the road seeing not only your books but those you edited? It's like uh, seeing your nephews or something <laughs> to see them all out there. And in publishing, the work is spread out over years, uh, years to write the book. Sometimes the book is presented to the sales force over a year before it actually comes out. It's a strange paradox of publishing culture now that uh, you have to announce things earlier in order to then publish them faster. So, because I left publishing about a year ago, I suddenly wrapped up a lot of projects. So I was out on tour on behalf of my own book, and I'd see really the last three or four years of work all represented on the shelves there. Mm-hmm. And it it made me feel uh, just grateful for the work that I had a chance to do. Uh, some phenomenal books. David Thompson's book on film. Seth Rosenfeld's book about uh, the free speech movement in Berkeley. Right. Uh, Pat Tyler's book about uh, the military character of the Israeli state, and on and on. Mm-hmm. 
And you said um, you left publishing and now you're a senior research fellow with the Georgetown University Berkeley Center. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how that's affected your own writing life? So both of my books, The Life You Save May Be Your Own and Reinventing Bach, are about how religion and matters of the spirit, whatever you want to call them, uh, find expression through the arts, through literature, through music, uh, etc. So I have an incredible opportunity with Georgetown to just follow that line and see where it goes. How does the life of the spirit, uh, religious matters, how are they worked out through literature and the arts? I uh, pursued that really at night for a few years. Now I get to do it during the daytime. And we're developing a lot of different projects that uh, I hope will answer that question. And I tried to speak to it in a recent essay in the New York Times book review looking at recent fiction, there aren't too many uh, religious believers, Christian believers, in contemporary American literary fiction. So I tried to puzzle out why that is and what what its absence, what the absence of them tells us. We've been talking with Paul Eli, author of Reinventing Bach. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is going to talk to us about the recently announced winners of the Newberry and Caldecott Awards. So stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today that's PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers. He's here with a report on the Newberry and Caldecott Awards, which were just announced at the American Library Association Conference. John, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you guys for having me. So tell us the news. Who are the winners? Yeah, so uh, you know they just recently announced at the, uh, the annual ALA midwinter meeting uh, all the big uh, awards in the children's book world. They, they announced about a dozen of them, and uh, certainly the biggest ones would be the the biggest and the oldest, and I guess the most prestigious are the the Newberry and the Caldecott. Um, there's mm-hmm. also you know the Prince and several other awards, but th- those two are sort of the the big ones. And, um, yeah, so on the, uh, the Caldecott side, uh, this was actually the, the 75th anniversary of the Caldecott. Um, wow. Which first award, yeah, first awarded in 1937. And, uh, you know, past winners, you've got books like uh, Make Way for Duckling, The Snowy Day, Where the Wild Things Are, um, The Polar Express. So, you know, these are some big uh, major, you know, books in the, uh, the children's book canon. And uh, this year, uh, the winner was John Classen, uh, and he won for This Is Not My Hat. Um, it's a it's actually the second book um, in a sort of a loosely uh, connected series. Uh, his first book uh, was called uh, "I Want My Hat Back," and it was a story about a a bear whose hat has been stolen. And the second book is about a fish who's actually the thief, and he's stolen another fish's hat and is trying to get away with it. Um, so he was the uh, the big winner this year, and he actually made a little bit of history in the process. Um, he not only did he win the Caldecott Medal, he also received a Caldecott Honor. Um, for another book that he did last year called Extra Yarn. Um, wow. So this is the first time since 1947 that an illustrator has received both a Caldecott medal and an honor in the same year. Um, what, and, so. Could you tell us the difference between a Caldecott honor and a Caldecott medal, and what do they signify? Yeah, absolutely. So these, these um, the Caldecott is really an award for... Uh, it goes to the most distinguished picture book for children, but the folks is really this is a this is an award really for the illustrator. Now, often the illustrator will be 
the, the author as well, as was the case this year with uh, This Is Not My Hat. But this is sort of uh, the award that goes for it. This is about the art, um, really. And so they, um, the, the difference being that mainly that the, uh, the medal is the top prize and the honor, uh, Caldecott honors are sort of the, the runners-up. It's still extremely prestigious to get a Caldecott honor. And there can be there's a varying number of honors that might be uh, uh, given out in a year. And this year there are actually five Caldecott honor books, which is a pretty big number. And um, you could, uh, they broadcast the, the announcement of these awards online on the webcast. And you could be, when they said there was five of them, you could just hear the librarians and sort of explode. They were very excited. <laughs> it's a big deal. So, so tell us where these awards are given and what's the occasion and what's the atmosphere usually like around here? And who yeah, attends absolutely. this? Okay, so, so the, these, uh, these awards are all announced uh, annually in January at the American Library Association's Midwinter Conference. It's a... Uh, annual meeting of librarians from across the country. And this midwinter one is especially a big deal because it is where they announced these big, uh, big awards. Uh, the location changes every year. Uh, this past year, it was in Seattle. Um, and so what they've done in recent years, which has really been kind of wonderful, is that they've been um, doing a live webcast of the awards so that people across the country, you know, including yeah, and basically the authors, you know, uh, people working in publishing, librarians who couldn't make it to the conference, everybody gets to tune in. And so the combination of that plus uh, Twitter in, in the past couple of years, I mean, it just, I think it's really changed the, the way these announcements, these uh, announcements feel. It happens in the morning. Everybody is sort of, everybody in the children's book world is tuned in either to Twitter or to the webcast. And you just, you, you really, it feels like, like one of these rare moments where the entire children's book world kind of comes together and, and the technology has really made that possible. So it's been very cool. And there's just this energy. I mean, I was watching on, uh, on Monday and when, whenever one of these big awards was announced, you'd, you'd see the author's name or the title sometimes trending nationally. It, it, it's, people are really plugged in and tuned in. So it's been very cool to see. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, where PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is giving us the rundown on recent children's book awards. So when I think of children's books, it's an enormous field. How hard must it be to pare these down to just a, a handful of award-winning books? I mean, are, they, are there some books that are generally widely acknowledged as favorites, or is it always a surprise just because there's such an enormous list of books to choose from? It's a good question. There, there, it, it really depends. I do think that, um, well, first of all, it is an enormous, uh, job and responsibility. There are, there are committees that spend basically, you know, a year sort of paying attention to and, and, you know, parsing the books that have been, you know, that are coming out in a given year and trying to winnow it down to what seem like the best, uh, selections. Um, there's definitely a lot of, uh, sort of armchair quarterbacking that goes on, especially in the, the months leading up to, uh, months and weeks leading up to the announcements. Um, in the case right. of this year's um, Newbery Medal, I would say that the the winner, which is a book called The One and Only Ivan by Catherine Applegate, was, mm -hmm. it's not a clear favorite. It was definitely one of the books that had been discussed pretty heavily as a, as a potential contender. Um, now, however, the Prince winner, which uh, was a book called In Darkness, and the Prince Award goes to, uh, basically, it's, it's an award for excellence for in books for older readers, for teens. Went to a right, book and called, that's P-R-I-N-T-Z, uh, right? I always heard correct. it as Prince, like Prince and Princess. But, uh. <laughs> but it's correct. It's Prince with a Z. And right. uh, that went to a book uh, called In Darkness uh, by Nick Lake, sort of about the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. 
That one, um, I would, would call it Dark Horse, and I actually spoke uh, to the author after his win, and he completely shared that, and he fully acknowledged that he was a Dark Horse, not you know, perhaps one of the books that had been expected to uh, take home that prize. But he was, of course, extremely grateful and excited about it. I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Right now, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is telling us about some award-winning children's books. And uh, tell us a little more about the Newberry. Absolutely. So the uh, the Newberry is uh, uh, an award that goes to the, uh, I guess it's, it's sort of the uh, the most distinguished uh, contribution to literature for children. It's sort of a broad thing, but this one compared to the Caldecott is really about the authors. Uh, Mm-hmm. The it, it, I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say it goes to a quote unquote middle grade book you know for elementary school age reader but it is uh, the audience for that book is sort of a broad sort of takes a sort of broad age range of children into account um, it, that's the oldest of these awards it was first awarded in 1922 um, you know some some of the past winners mm-hmm. include books like um, Island of the Blue Dolphins A Wrinkle in Time Bridge to Terabithia mm-hmm. The Western Game so a lot of you know, major classics uh, and have been awarded the Newberry over the years. Um, and this year, as I mentioned, the, the winner was a book called The One and Only Ivan, and it's a novel narrated by a, uh, a silverback gorilla that lives in a sort of badly run roadside attraction with some other performing animals. And it's, as you might imagine, not the best situation, And then, when, especially when a new sort of uh, younger baby elephant comes uh, into the attraction, uh, the animals sort of try to figure out how they can uh, extricate themselves from <laughs> from an unpleasant situation. So if somebody, like, say, a parent walks into a bookstore, uh, are they going to be directed to these books? Is, is there a sense that uh, people shop by going in and saying, show me the award-winning books? Uh, how, how, does, how does getting an award like this affect a book's sales and popularity and longevity? Yeah, especially with children's books. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it makes a big difference. I mean, the first thing that all of these publishers do, whether you know they've received uh, a medal or an honor, or and not even just these two. I mean, there were many, many other awards announced on Monday in different categories, and those medals. You know, the first thing that happens is those medals get you know, slapped on the covers of all of these books, and it's it's definitely a selling point. I think if you're a parent and going to the store, and especially if you are going there without maybe a specific idea in mind, but you just have a general idea of I'm looking for a picture book or I'm looking for some fiction, I think those medals really do stand out, and they can really make a big difference in uh, the way a book uh, might sell. And as for librarians, I mean, these are being announced at librarians' conferences. Does this affect the kind of books that you might expect to see in your library? Are all of these books going to be stocked now in, in public libraries and school libraries? Absolutely. And, and a lot of the reactions that I was seeing on Twitter, because everybody, you know, you always wonder what, what are, these awards are not, you know, these books are not announced ahead of time. There are no long lists or short lists. So it, it's always basically a really big surprise on Monday, which I think is part of the excitement. And um, a lot of times... Uh, Librarians are, you know, kicking themselves because they didn't have. They, they want to see how many of those books do I have in my system. Uh, tellers, this thing. Do we, have, do we have copies of that available? And uh, and, and frankly, on, on our end too, it's sort of like, how, you know, how did we do? You know, we've been reviewing these books all years. Did we? Uh, you know, did we star the big winners? Did we? Did we? You know, get them right? Did we have a sense of what were going to be the big books? So there's always a lot of excitement, no matter what your role in the industry. You know, whether you're uh, a librarian, a publisher, a, an author, to, to see what the, the picks are going to be. 
I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Right now, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is telling us about some award-winning children's books. And we're talking about the Caldecott and Newberry Awards and the winners uh, this past Monday. And who who are the judges on, on both these panels? How many are there? Are they former Newberry or Caldecott Award winners? Are they editors? Are they readers? Librarians? Um, I believe it's a mix. I'm not... You know, unfortunately, I've not had the uh, the honor of being asked to be on one of these committees just yet. But I, it, it is a mix. I think oh, I'm sure you will soon. <laughs> fingers crossed, and you know, I'm keeping for that. You know, authors authors are waiting for a certain call, and I'm waiting for the other one. But uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I believe it's a mix. I know that you know a lot of librarians are involved uh, with these committees. Um, I don't believe. I'm not sure about the authors. I don't know that authors are in the uh, the picking committees for this. It's not something I'm super well versed on. I have to admit. And but, with uh, the Caldecott, did you say that the uh, picture books are are included in that as well? Yeah, considered? absolutely. Caldecotts are the uh, for the Caldecott picture books are most often the the recipients. Um, there, a few years back, uh, Brian Selznick won for a book called The Invention of Hugo Hugo Cabret, which was an extremely long illustrated novel that was told you know, largely through um, through his black and white pencil drawings. And that was a that was a real surprise when it won. That because usually you're you're we're talking about a thirty two or forty page picture book winning the Caldecott mm-hmm. and for for this massive novel to win the Caldecott, I think took everybody by surprise uh, that year. And that's that's another fun thing too about the uh, about being able to listen in on the webcast because you know, there's such an air of excitement, you know, at the conference with the librarians in attendance, and to hear when when each title is announced, there's just you, you know explosions of energy, you know, cheers because the librarians they love these books, and especially when certain uh, favorites uh, win, or if there's a surprise win, or other surprises, you know, we can all we're all witness to it. We can all sort of tune in and listen. And, um, this year, uh, one of, for one of the awards, um, the Pura Bel Pre, which goes to uh, books that sort of reflect the Latino experience, uh, they also do an award for illustrators, and they well, they gave a medal, but they didn't give any honor books, and I, and there were wow definitely mm. there were gaps. I mean, there were there were gaps in the in the crowd, and I think everybody was sort of shocked that out of all the books published in the past year, they found one to give a medal to, but no 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 honor books were chosen. So, you know, but we all got to sort of notice that and you know tune in and everybody's just you know sort of hanging on the words of every uh announcement for each award well john thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing that excitement with us i really appreciate it thank you john absolutely happy to be here all right that was john sellers publishers weekly's children's reviews editor and that's it for today's show i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and you've been listening to publishers weekly radio now if you want to hear your question on the air next week just email it to us at publishers i'm sorry pw radio at publishersweekly.com or you can tweet it at pub weekly radio that's pub wkly radio on twitter we would love to hear from you Tune in next time for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.